All right. Our first question has to do with the mention of Sheol at the end of the chapter. Notice in 37:35 it says, "Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son." What is Sheol? And did the saints of the Old Testament, did the Christians of the Old Testament believe in the afterlife? The answer is yes. Yes. They certainly did believe in the afterlife. Why is this an important question to answer and to answer correctly? Because most people, when they look at the Bible, the Old Testament especially, they think the Old Testament is merely about the physical world, the here and now. They think that they were only concerned about peace, progeny, and a pot belly. That they just were concerned about the physical pleasures, the physical necessities of this life, and they'd had no conception or very little conception of the afterlife, let alone believing in the coming death and resurrection of Christ. But they did. They believed in the coming death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. They believed in the upcoming death and resurrection of Christ. That's why we say Old Testament Christians. That's why we could say Old Testament church. That's why we can say they were regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That's why we say that they were redeemed and had the hope of eternal life. Eternal life with the Lord forever. This was their hope. They were looking for the city which has as its builder and architect God. That's what they were hoping in. Not this world. That was indicated one way by mentioning the sojourn. The sojourn. I would like to talk a little bit more about the sojourn and also about Sheol since the question comes up about Sheol. In reference to the sojourn, Leviticus 25, 23. Leviticus 25, 23. These laws are for them to obey in the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan will become their homeland, their native land. The population of Israel will be born there. So they should in no way be considered aliens and sojourners when they are in Canaan. Yet, God wants them to consider themselves such. In Leviticus 25, 23, he says, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, and you are but aliens and sojourners with me. You are aliens and sojourners with me. With me, aliens and sojourners in the land of Canaan for generations after generation. They are going to be aliens and sojourners with God. In what way? In the same way, Psalm 39, Psalm 39, 12. Psalm 39, 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. David says, I am a stranger with you. God is a stranger on the earth with David. Not many people know God on the earth with David. 
David is unknown. David has a temporary place. God has a temporary place on earth with David. And not only David, but all of my fathers, David says. A sojourner like all of my fathers. 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He calls these believers aliens. Not because they were uprooted from the land of Israel and now they are aliens in a physical sense in these other regions of the Greek and Roman Empire. He's not talking about that. He's talking about them being aliens on the earth because their citizenship is in heaven. First Peter, First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Aliens and strangers. This is the way we are. Furthermore, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, 17. 1 Peter 1, 17. And if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. During the time of your stay on earth. Aliens and sojourners. Starting in Genesis all the way throughout the whole Bible. One more place, and that is in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Did Abraham know that he was an alien and sojourner on the earth, living primarily in Canaan, but really on the earth, and that he was to hope for the life to come, the world to come? Yes. Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. 13 to 16. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We saw that confession in Genesis 47, 9. Jacob said it to Pharaoh. We saw that confession. David said it in Psalm 39, 12. He confessed. 14. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they could have gone back to Ur of the Chaldeans, correct? They could have gone back. They could have returned even. Moses and Aaron, Miriam, could have returned to the land of Egypt. They did not. Why did they not? 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them a better country and a better city the heavenly city they were hoping and living for that 
Then, another aspect of this, which we saw in Genesis 37, is the mention of Sheol. I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. Did Jacob believe that he had a material body and an immaterial spirit? An immaterial spirit along with his material body. Did he believe in body and soul? Or did he only think of himself as an animated a biologically animated body, and that's it. Most people think Jacob had no clue, Jacob and all the rest of the Christians of the Old Testament had no clue about the inner life, the internal life, the heart, the soul, the spirit, and its survival after death. Most people think that they had no clue about that or very little knowledge of it. When actually, they knew about it more than we realize. And a careful study of the Old Testament will prove that. It will show that. They did, in fact, know that they had a soul that survives the body. And that soul and body in resurrection will live forever, either with the Lord or in eternal punishment. They knew all that. Clearly they knew that. Genesis 35. Genesis 35, 18. Genesis 35, 18. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. Her soul departed, it says. Why does it say her soul departed? Because her soul survived her body. All souls survive. They don't die in the sense that they don't cease to exist. They're not annihilated. They're not extinguished. They're not obliterated. Our physical bodies die and are put in the grave. But our souls or spirits, that doesn't happen to them. That kind of non-existence does not happen to them. Psalm 88. Psalm 88, verse 10. Psalm 88, 10. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? It said in Genesis, her soul departed. Here it says, the departed spirits. That means the spirits depart and go somewhere. Where do they go? They go to Sheol. They departed to Sheol. Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. Ecclesiastes 12, 7. These verses, for your information, are all in the Old Testament. (laughs) For those who say the Old Testament makes no distinction between body and soul. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. The dust will return to the earth as it was. That's the body. The Spirit returns to God. For what reason? Verses 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, 
is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person, because God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Every act is brought to judgment, whether good or evil. Now, confirmation in Luke 16. Luke 16. Luke 16, 19 to 31. Luke 16, 19 to 31. Now, there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which, are, which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Christ, he proclaims this message before the day of Pentecost. No doubt. Correct? Luke 16 is before Acts chapter 2. And Luke wrote both books in sequence, chronological sequence. Luke 16, therefore, must be understood in light of that fact. Because false interpreters say they didn't know anything until Jesus spoke this, or until Acts chapter 2. Not true. Because here, for it to be understandable to his readers, or to his listeners, and then to the readers, they have to know about who Abraham was, they have to know about Lazarus, and they also have to know about Hades, for it to be understandable to them. Right? Well, what is Hades? What did they understand? Hades is a Greek word that is the equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew word Sheol. Sheol in Hebrew, Old Testament, equals Hades in the New Testament. It's even the same word, the Greek word, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When in ancient times, 250 B.C. to 150 B.C., the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. That Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint translated 
the word Sheol for the afterlife, the place of the afterlife, as Hades. And here Christ and Luke and throughout the New Testament, when they refer to this place, they refer to it as Hades. And what happens there? There is a place where Abraham resided and there is a place where Lazarus uh, was with Abraham and also the rich man in a different one. And there's a great chasm fixed between the two. One is in torment, in agony, in the flames, and the other is not. Abraham and Lazarus are not. The rich man is. This is the afterlife. And where can we know this and find this? According to Christ and Abraham in verses 30 to 31, we can know this on the basis of Moses and the prophets. We don't have to have Luke, the book of Luke, to know this truth. According to Christ in verses 30 and 31. Merely by reading Moses and the prophets, we can and should know this truth about the afterlife. Let's continue. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. And we'll read verses 6 to 8. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. 2 Corinthians 5, 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. When our spirit or soul is absent from the body, it is at home or present with the Lord. You might recall Stephen when he was about to die, Acts 7, 59, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He went to be with the Lord Jesus. Philippians 1, Philippians 1, 21 to 24. Philippians 1, 21 to 24. Our last passage. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. There's our key word back in Genesis 35, 18, to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Stephen, Paul, and all believers, they depart from this world and they go to join the Lord, to be with Christ. Therefore, Old Testament and New Testament, the theology is the same. The belief is the same on the afterlife. And even right now, when we die, we don't cease to exist. Contrary, contrary to liberalism within Christianity and contrary to cultic Christianity, such as Seventh-day Adventism. These kinds of people, these kinds of groups, false interpreters, false prophets, they teach that when we die, we cease to exist. The wicked cease to exist permanently 
And even believers, even believers will either temporarily or permanently cease to exist after death. This world is the main thing to them, to the majority of them. Not exactly every single one, but generally speaking, many people within Christianity think that way. Yet it's not true. Any follow-up to this? Yes. Now, could you address in like annihilationism in terms of those who teach that hell because they don't like the idea of people being tormented for eternity that they teach that hell is the they just cease to exist. So in the life to come, the righteous will live forever, but the unrighteous, the wicked, will just cease to exist because it seems too much that God will torment them for all eternity. And then, how common is that belief in Christianity? Who are some of the main believers of that? Who taught that? Okay, yes. Address annihilationism because they deny eternal punishment. Well, let's first go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 and verse 46. Matthew 25, 46. Christ there says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There are two eternal outcomes, two eternal destinations, destinies. Matthew 25, 46, eternal punishment, eternal life. Both in the Greek language and in English, we have the word eternal, the same word, both in Greek and English, eternal punishment, eternal life. The noun punishment and the noun life are different, but the adjectives are the same. Eternal punishment, eternal life. No doubt, that's a fact. That's a fact of grammar. It's a fact of the evidence. It's a fact of the manuscripts. There is no other way to look at it. The adjectives are the same. Therefore, the punishment has to be eternal. Cannot be temporary. Because if life is eternal, which these who uh, the, the heretics who trans or who interpret eternal punishment as temporary, then they would, logically speaking, have to say eternal life is temporary life. Right. It's only for a short period. Short compared to eternity. But we can't do that. It says eternal punishment and it says eternal life. Even if it bothers them that God would punish someone for eternity, we have to believe what the Scripture says. Not what our idol teaches us. Remember, 1 John 5, 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. If we construct a God contrary to the God of the Bible, we have constructed, we have fashioned an idol. And all idolaters are thrown into the lake, that fire, uh, lake of fire that burns with brimstone. Revelation 21.8. Idolaters go there. We have to submit our minds, our proud minds, to the scriptures. It teaches eternal punishment and eternal life. It's eternal. 
Both are eternal. But let's more reiterate the point about the punishment. They say, falsely, annihilationism teaches falsely, that if someone ceases to exist, if someone is obliterated, annihilated, extinguished, that that is punishment. And that is what happens forever and ever. However, that part or that definition of punishment does not match Scripture. Why so? How do we know so? John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Christ teaches us what will happen on the day of judgment. Twenty-five. Um, uh, sorry, John five twenty-eight and twenty-nine. John five twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life; those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There are two ways or two resurrections. Resurrection of life, resurrection of judgment. Resurrection entails our physical body, our body of flesh and bone. There is no resurrection of spirits because spirits don't die the way the body dies. That's why the Bible never speaks of the spirit, the human spirit, as rising up from the dead. As though it was dead, there was a dead spirit, and then the spirit was quickened. It doesn't speak of the spirit that way, the human spirit or soul. It does speak of our spirits being dead in trespasses and sins, us being dead that way, but not in any biological or literal way of a spirit that ceases to exist, that is completely dead, and then brought to life. Only the physical body is that way. If that's the case, then there are two resurrections, life and judgment. If we're in Christ, resurrection of life. If we're not in Christ, resurrection of judgment. Therefore, if we are raised immortally to eternal life or raised to judgment, the wicked or the goats raised like that, that will be the body that they retain forever. That's the eternal punishment. In that way, they will consist, they will remain forever in eternal punishment. If that body isn't eternal, then it has to cease to exist again. Let's say, on the day of judgment, however long it takes, And according to these skeptics and heretics, they actually imagine God taking a while to judge everybody. But we we don't believe that, but just going along with them. If it does take God some time to judge everybody, then it would mean that their day of judgment lasts for a while in their body in which they were raised, the wicked were raised in a body, And then that body is obliterated, ceases to exist, so that they don't exist anymore. Do we have anything like that? Any scenario like that in Scripture? No. We have 
the eternal nature of the consequence and the physical body. Daniel 12.2, speaking of Moses and the prophets, Daniel 12.2, Daniel says this very thing. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Everlasting life, everlasting contempt. Same word, everlasting or eternal, unending. Life, unending contempt. And where do they all rise? They all rise from where do they rise? From the ground, resurrection, either to life or to judgment, as Jesus said. It's one of the two, life or contempt or judgment. There shall certainly be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Acts 24, 15. Then you asked also about who believes in annihilationism. Were you asking for specific names or groups or both? Both, sure. Okay. Um, Liberalism. I know you don't like naming names. (laughs) Yes. Liberalism. Liberal Christianity, and I'm using those for the sake of discussion, but literally, you cannot be a liberal and a Christian. Right. What we say liberal Christianity because they're not claiming to be Hindus. They're not claiming to be Muslims. They're claiming to be Christian. So we have to use the word. And the Bible does this too. So they, liberal Christianity. Where is liberal Christianity? It's in all of the denominations all of the denominations, except a few very, very small ones. But that tendency, that liberal tendency, is in the flesh and in the world, and Satan uses the world and the flesh to promote liberalism. What is liberalism? Liberalism is a denial of the gospel. It's a denial of the biblical truths in relation to God, the world, the ministry of Christ, the identity of Christ, and the way of salvation and what salvation entails. Liberalism denies all of that. We can find liberalism not only in all of of the denominations, but in all of the institutions. Every, every institution, whether in the United States or North America or anywhere else around the world, every theological institution has a contingency of liberalism. Unbelief. Everywhere. No doubt. And I don't mean just one out of ten professors. I mean, at the very, very least, the majority of the professors, if not nine out of ten or ten out of ten professors. Certainly a majority of the professors are liberal, if not nine out of ten or ten out of ten, of all the professors in all educational institutions, including seminaries. It doesn't matter what the presidents say. It doesn't matter what their advertisements say. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. They are lying to you. They are lying to you because they want your students and they want your money. But they are liberal. They couch it 
in very crafty terminology. They use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning, and they use common words with an uncommon meaning. That's how they slip in and deceive their audiences, their students. That's how they do it. But it is certainly there. So liberalism everywhere. And that's who is usually quoted in magazines. They are the ones who are writing all the books. They are the ones that first pop up on the Internet when you do a search. No matter what search engine you choose, you're usually going to get at the very top on the first page mostly liberal links to theological questions. Usually that's the way it is. Um, then it's also found in cultic Christianity. Christian cults. Meaning, they're not Christian, but they claim to be Christian, but they are heretics, apostates, false teachers, false prophets. Among them, you will find annihilationism and some kind of denial of the afterlife in its true biblical form. Christian scientists... They are not Christians and they're not scientists. But Christian scientists deny these realities of the afterlife. The Seventh-day Adventists, they also deny these realities of the afterlife in one way or another. They mitigate or qualify it one way or another. Then in terms of specific names, Billy Graham did not believe in hell, in the biblical hell. Billy Graham did not believe in that. And I guarantee you, if you ask and research, most of the popular preachers, popular theologians, those who are on the radio, those who are on the television, those who are writing all the books, if you examine their writings, I would say most of them also do not believe in hell. They don't. Most of them do not. And how do we know? They don't preach it. They don't talk about it. They don't talk about it as a present reality. They don't do that. They never mention it. And if they were to do it on the radio, their audience would shrink and they wouldn't be on the radio anymore. If they were to do it on the radio or the television. When was the last time a book on hell was popular? A book on hell, popular. No. They don't preach against sin. They don't preach repentance for forgiveness of sins, faith in the true gospel of Christ, and the threat of hell. They don't do that. So most people, you ask for, for names. Let me say, most people actually don't even believe in hell. If they believe in hell, they only believe it for people like you and me who truly believe in it. Because they'll say that they will treat us in very malicious ways. They'll say very nasty things about us, slander us, and even persecute us and expect us to close our churches, close our pulpits, be thrown in prison, or be put to death. If they had their way, they would do that to us. Because they don't believe in hell. They, if there is a hell, we are the ones going there. They are not. In fact, these same people in popular Christianity, they think Pharaoh 
is saved. Pharaoh of the book of Exodus. Pharaoh is saved. They think Esau, Esau of the book of Genesis, is saved. They think Judas Iscariot is saved. Judas Iscariot is saved. They think that. That's how much everybody wants to deny eternal punishment. The flesh, in conjunction with the world and Satan, the flesh fights against the belief in hell, the biblical hell. And most of your friends, most of your family, most of your churches believe that there is no hell. Most churches, most people in the churches, that's the way it is. They don't believe in hell. I hope that finishes up. Okay. All right. Next topic. Well, let's stay on that topic. Okay, stay on that topic. Yes. Uh, You know, Scripture always seems pretty clear when you read it. Uh, And one of the things that you referenced there in Luke 16, uh, Lazarus and the rich man, and then the last statement that was there of if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't listen to it. Is a seemingly a very clear statement on the power of Scripture, more authoritative and useful mm-hmm. than anything else. Yes. Why? Why does the church constantly forget that? Why do we think that things better than Moses and the prophets? <laughs> will convert lost people to salvation. And so, movies, right, will be the great way to do it. Entertainment will be a great way to do it. Why why does the church continually fail to believe that Moses and the prophets is better? Because even us in the room, we, we would, I think, naturally think that if someone came back from the dead tomorrow and preached in our churches, it would be the best service we ever had. Like, right? I mean, that would be really amazing. You know, someone came back. But that would, boy, that would do it. But if that doesn't work, why, why are we so prone to believe that other things are better than the Word of God for conversion? Okay. Why are we prone to believing that other things are better than the Word of God? Because Luke 16, 30-31, Jesus made it absolutely clear that they should listen to Moses and the prophet. That's what they really need. Why don't people believe that? Well, that is the problem. They don't believe the Bible is God's Word. They don't believe the Holy Bible, the Holy Scriptures, are actually holy and actually from God. They will say with their lips, yes, but their actions betray their words. Their works betray their words. They'll say, yes, yes, I believe this is the inerrant Word of God. I believe this is the infallible Word of God. I believe this is inspired by God. They will say that and they'll point their finger at the Bible. They'll hold up the Bible. They'll do all kinds of things and say, yes, I believe in the Bible. Well, that's what evangelicals do. Liberals won't do that. Liberals openly say, no, we don't believe in the Bible. And then they live that way in their church and life, right? Evangelicals say, no, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. But their works, the works of evangelicals show they don't believe what they're saying in their words. 
because they don't have faith. They don't have true faith. They don't have true faith because Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why? Why richly? So that you can encourage and admonish and grow in your faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. They don't believe that the words of Christ in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, that these words actually produce faith. Why won't they believe it? Because the preachers don't have true faith. Because the preachers don't have true faith, they don't preach true faith from the Bible. The preachers don't have true faith. They don't preach true faith. And if they don't preach true faith, they cannot beget children. Right? A living father begets a son. Right? But a dead father cannot beget a son. If a son is begotten, it has to be a dead son. If I may say, in our churches, both in the pulpit and in the pews, most of the people are stillborn people. They are spiritually stillborn. That is, they came out of the womb in some sense. That is, they showed up to church, or their name is John, not Mohammed. Their name is John. So, in that some sense, they are Christian. They identify like that. So, a birth has taken place of some sort, a fictitious one, superficial one, but not a real birth because a stillborn baby is a dead baby. So they're alive in the sense that they are there, but internally they are spiritually dead. They don't love God, they don't love the Word of God, and they don't love the people of God. If they hate God, they will hate the Word of God and hate the people of God. Right. Either they love God or they hate God. To some ears, that sounds like you're listening to a fanatic to say love and hate in reference to God. To some ears, it sounds like it's a fanatic. Then Jesus was a fanatic. Matthew 6.24 Matthew 6.24 no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's hate, love, hold, or despise. Right? It's only those choices. Those are the only choices Christ gave us. Well, if a newborn baby tastes the milk of the mother, does he not want more? A, a truly newborn baby tastes the milk of the mother, the newborn wants more. That analogy is in 1 Peter 2, 1-3. And he says, like newborn infants long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. <clears throat> like newborn infants, 
So that analogy I used of newborn and stillborn is actually what Peter is implying in 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. Peter's implying that if you are a true newborn in Christ, you are truly alive, you tasted that good word of God. You tasted it and you want more of it. But those who are not truly born, again, they don't want it. They despise it. They don't even know it's real. They have no experience of it. They despise it. Therefore, the preachers and the pewers, those in the pew, are stillborn because they don't preach the word. Furthermore, they don't have faith in the word. This was evident in your question. Why don't they believe it? They don't have faith in the word. If they had faith in the word, then they would preach it. They would preach it. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In parallel, he says, faith and conviction are interchangeable. And he says, hope and things not seen are interchangeable, right? Faith and conviction. These, the people who don't preach the word do not have the conviction of faith. They don't have that. They don't have true faith then. And if they had conviction, what would they do if they had it? They would preach it. 2 Corinthians 4, 13. Having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore also we speak. The same spirit of faith, he calls it. 2 Corinthians 4.13 I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore also we speak. If we truly believe, we will speak. If we don't believe, we won't speak. According to the spirit of faith. Naturally then we ask, what do we speak? We speak the word. Not our word, God's word. That's what we speak. In the same chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6, 1 to 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God said, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
The true teachers teach the glory of God in the, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In verse 4, they teach the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In verse 5, they teach Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. In verse 1, we have received this ministry, we who have received it, we receive also mercy and we do not lose heart in doing these things, right? We who are true. But those who are false, they don't renounce the things hidden because of shame. They are the ones who walk in craftiness. They adulterate, pollute the word of God. They don't openly manifest the truth of who they are and what they believe. They don't have a good conscience in the sight of God. They are veiled. They are perishing, according to verse 3. In verse 4, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded their minds. They are unbelieving. They don't see the light of the gospel. Verse 5, they do not preach Christ Jesus as Lord. What do they preach? They preach themselves. They preach themselves. This week, I went to the park with my little son, and I saw a bird, and so forth. You know how it goes. Some anecdotes about what happened to them during the week, what they like to do, hunting, fishing, golfing, whatever, vacationing, something that they do like that. They talk about themselves that way. They talk about what they read today or this week on the, on the news, the magazine, a book, right? They talk about things like that and they don't preach the Bible. They're preaching themselves. They are a perfect example of what the apostle is talking about here, preaching themselves. So they don't have the conviction of faith to preach the Bible. That's why they preach themselves. They want the people to like them instead of the people loving Christ. They're taking the glory away from Christ and exalting themselves. Well, why would they do that? We've already said they don't have faith. They don't believe in the word of Christ. They claim it, but they don't really live it, so they don't believe in it. But what advantage do they have? What are they doing for themselves and and what are they taking from the people? They're taking fame and fortune. That's what they're taking from the people, fame and fortune. If they preached the word, if they preached the cross of Christ, if they preached hell, if they preached repentance for forgiveness of sins and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, if they truly preached those doctrines, biblically speaking, their churches of a hundred would have maybe only nine or ten people. Maybe even zero. (laughs) Their churches would be that way. And they don't want their churches to be that way. So, it's easier and better for them to pretend and entertain the people 
and keep the show going. Keep it going. They know what they're doing, and the people who attend know what they're doing. The blind lead the blind. And when the the blind man leads another blind man, both of them will fall into a pit. Matthew 15, 14. That's what's actually happening. Many times people excuse the, the crowd of blind men. However, if you ask that crowd of blind men, why, why do you go to that church? If they're honest with you, they'll tell you because he says good things. He says nice things. He's always telling me how much God loves me in spite of how I live. In spite of how I live. That is, they love their sin and hate God. The preacher will tell them, God loves you even though you love your sin and hate God. The preacher will tell you that everything is fine with you. Peace and safety. Peace, peace. When there is no peace. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Amen. Isaiah the prophet says. Yet that's what the preachers proclaim. Since they do it, it makes people feel good. And they want to feel good now rather than feel good for eternity. They are just like the rich man in the rich man and Lazarus. They are just like the rich young ruler. They want to feel good now even if, even if the preacher tells them lies. They would rather live a life of lies That's what sustains their guilty conscience. God has given them a conscience. What sustains their guilty conscience is a diet of lies, a feast of lies. The more that they feast on lies, the easier it is for them to live day by day. Now you say, do people really do that? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Ask your friends. Ask your friends what they want to hear. And they will say something like this. Isaiah 30, Isaiah 30, verse 9. We'll read 9 to 11. Isaiah 30, 9 to 11. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. Who say to the seers, you must not see visions and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions, get out of the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. People will actually say things like this. Speak pleasant words, speak illusions, get out of the way. I don't want to hear about the Holy One of Israel. You're preaching holiness authoritatively? Get away from me. Or like Felix, unhappy Felix said to Paul. When Paul was preaching righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, he said, go away from me. For the moment. Go away from me for the moment. Um, and when I find time, 
I will summon you. When I find time, I will summon you. And then when he did find time, why did he want Paul there? For money. money, A bribe. So it's all about money. If it's not about the truth, it will inevitably be about money. If it's not truth, it's money. Felix, the false prophets, the false teachers, the false pastors, the false Christians, that's what it will be. If it's not about truth, it's about having the best experience in life now with the hope that there is no hell and for all eternity we're all going to heaven. And remember, you've never been at a funeral where the pastor said, this man in the coffin went to hell. Correct? Everybody goes to heaven. That is, the universalism is a universal plague. So they assuage their guilty conscience by saying, it's not as bad as you're saying it is. It's not as bad as you're saying it is. It's better and easier for me to listen to pleasant words, to listen to lies. So give me a liar instead of you. That's what happens. Anything more on this subject or another one? Yes? What are like personal testimonies or experiences appropriate to, to share when are personal stories or testimonies valid to share? Yeah. Well, in the case of John chapter 9, the blind man that Christ healed, when he was asked about his experience, he explained what actually happened to him. In the book of Acts, starting in chapter 21, from 21 to 28, whenever the Apostle Paul was confronted, somebody asked about him, what's going on with you? Or when he was brought before the authorities, both religious and political authorities, when he was asked about who he is and his experience, he explained what God did in his life, who he is from his background to the present. Those were the contexts in which he explained to answer people's questions. But when we're talking about the use of of the pulpit, when we're talking about the worship service, when we're talking about church meetings, gathering, and we have precious little time, 30 minutes or an hour, to, to talk about something or to hear something, what is it that we need to hear for our salvation and sanctification? The Word of God. The Word of God. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. We're talking about the purpose of church or the purpose of someone inquiring about you. Who are you? Or why is it that there's a commotion going on over there between you and those others? What's going on? Well, John 9, the blind man was interrogated and Paul was interrogated from Acts 21 to 28 in various situations. So those would be suitable, appropriate contexts to explain some things about what happened in your life. But that, those are not, even those things are not, for example, if you read Acts 21 to 28, 
even there, the Apostle Paul isn't saying things about childhood experiences. He's not talking about things like that. Even when he was defending himself, he was talking about the facts of history and the truth of the word. The facts of history and the truth of the word in Acts 21 to 28. Even the blind man did that. The facts of history and the truth of what Jesus spoke to him. Another one would be John 4, the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well of Samaria. When she went to the townsmen, she said, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Even what, what's going on in her life? The facts of what Jesus said to her about herself and calling people's attention to Christ. Go and check him out yourself. This is what happened. It just recently happened. Go check him out yourself. And they did. That's what a testimony should be. But testimonies have become platforms for self-promotion, devoid of the facts of history in one's own life, but especially devoid of the use of the Bible. Devoid of the use of Scripture. And when testimonies are that, then they become worthless. What's the point? I could, I could even see or, or hear a testimony of a Muslim who was a, a heinous criminal and then because of the punishment he received, he had a dose of reality, an experience of civility that dawned on him. So he's then released from jail and he's not a criminal anymore. He marries a woman and raises a family. That's a Muslim man. A Muslim could do that and say that. What's the difference between a Muslim who has an experience of civility compared to a Christian or so-called Christian, John Smith, who was a criminal, notorious criminal, put, thrown in prison and, and then released from prison and realizes, I need to get my life in order. I'm going to marry a woman, raise a family. But still, he doesn't believe the true gospel. That nominal Christian doesn't believe the true gospel, and the civil Muslim doesn't believe the true gospel. Why? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Not with somebody saying, you need to uh, cut off the rough edges of your life and be a good citizen and a family man. Relatively speaking, that's better than a heinous criminal, of course. But in terms of eternal life, it's worthless for that man and worthless for his family if he does not believe in the word of Christ, the gospel of Christ. So that would be, I I would say, the place of testimonies or personal experiences. Okay, next topic. Yes. Yes. Jacob making the, the coat of many colors for his son, Joseph, and that the brothers were envious of this. Um, it also says in verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Is, 
is there a, is there a wrongdoing on Jacob's part for loving one son more than others? Well, if Joseph, okay, the question, Genesis 37, 37, 3 says, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, and he made him a very colored tunic. Was there any wrongdoing in Jacob or Israel's life in reference to Joseph compared to the sons? The way I explained it last hour was no. Let me reiterate that point. I don't think so. What have we learned from Genesis 37? The brothers are behaving like wicked men. And they have a pattern of behaving like wicked men. We don't have a temporary incident, but a pattern of behaving like wicked men. In their youth, Joseph is also a youth. So since they are behaving in that way, we take them to be unbelievers at that time. When they come to meet Joseph, do you remember what Joseph wanted to figure out before he revealed his identity? He wanted to believe, to see whether they were honest men or not. And he even told them that. He even said that they weren't honest, and then they said, no, no, we are honest. But he was testing them to see if they were honest men. He finally figures that out. And that's why he reveals his identity. Um, an example of this. 42.33. And the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies but honest men. I will give your brother to you and you may trade in the land. So there are a few examples of Joseph saying this and saying it openly to them. I want to know if you're honest men. Why would he have reason to doubt their honesty? Because of chapter 37. Several reasons throughout chapter 37 to know that they were dishonest and murderous men. And covetous men because they sold him into slavery for some money. Right? So he knew their sins. And he wanted to know. So they were unbelievers. Wicked at that time in Genesis 37. Joseph, on the other hand, was a believer. He was a believer. We know that because he received dreams and the interpretation of dreams from God. And um, by chapter 39, remember, he's only 17. He's not even 30 years old. But even if he were somewhere between age 17 and 30, don't most young men have extremely strong sexual desires? Yes. We should safely assume Joseph was that way, right? Well, in chapter 39, he resisted the temptation to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. Right? It wasn't rape, it was adultery. She really wanted him. And he was handsome, which means he could have exploited many women. 
So Joseph is showing his godliness. And also in chapter 39, it says a few times that the Lord was with Joseph and caused him to prosper in the, in the face of hardship. So examples of Joseph's godliness. Therefore, if Joseph is a believer, his brothers unbelievers, is it wrong for Jacob to love Joseph more than the rest of his sons? Is it a sin? No. No. Not a sin. Not a sin if because you have one son who is a believer, who loves to talk to you, who loves to be like-minded, who loves to learn from you, learn spiritual things from you, ask you questions. You can't help but love him more. To have an affinity to him and give him things Give him things, physical things too, as tokens of that love. I don't think it's wrong. In fact, it's the right thing to do. And then to withhold from the wicked sons. Is it right to withhold from the wicked sons? Sure it is. Even later in life, later in life, Jacob did that by prophecy against Reuben. Even after Reuben became a believer. Let's assume Reuben's a believer by Genesis 49. Genesis 49, remember Reuben committed adultery with Bilhah, the wife of Jacob. Genesis 35, 22. In Genesis 49, later in life, before Jacob dies, he prophesies by the word of the Lord concerning his sons, 49, 3, and 4. 49, 3, and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled is water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. He's still cursed. He's cursed not with a very, very extremely severe curse, but a curse. That is, instead of receiving a double portion of inheritance, which the firstborn was supposed to receive, cross-reference this with 1 Chronicles 5, 1. 5, 1 and 2. 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Instead of receiving a double portion, he received a single portion of inheritance, and Joseph, a double portion. Because of... Reuben's sin. Even after Reuben became a believer. And this God is the one who instructed, inspired Jacob to prophesy like that. So God doesn't think it's wrong to show favor to one son above another. Like that. Um, We also, in Matthew 20, we have this parable of the laborer's in the vineyard, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, Matthew 20, 1 to 16. You know how that parable is, is explained. The Lord says that in the morning and then throughout the day and even late in the day, the farmer goes into, the landowner goes into the marketplace to find day laborers and he finds them at various points throughout the day. 
who owns the money, who owns the land, and whose is the crop? The farmer, the landowner, right? Well, can he not do whatever he wants and pay the laborers whatever he wants and whatever the laborers say they agree to do, right? Right. So those who came last received the same amount of pay as those who came early in the morning, and those who were early, early in the day complain about it. But what is the guiding principle in this parable? What is the guiding principle? We'll read at verse 15. 15. 20, 15. Matthew 20, 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Is your eye envious or jealous or evil because I am generous? Good. Gracious. Didn't Jesus say that? It's okay. Whatever I have, I can give to whomever I wish. Does that answer your question? Okay. One more. Yes? A follow up? Not the same questions. Would Jacob not be? Uh, sinning when he uh, he loved Rachel more than Leah and God providentially caused Leah to become the first wife but he continued he was he loved Rachel so much and he he showed throughout the, the story there that he loved Rachel more than he did anyone else and God kept her from having children until Later in life, and the last ones. Uh, so, it doesn't that kind of indicate that Jacob uh, had some sinful ways in that? Okay, speaking of Jacob and an earlier incident, in Genesis 29, the question is Did Jacob sin in loving Rachel more than Leah? Or literally, loved Rachel, hated Leah? Did he sin? What does it say about Rachel and the reason he loved her and not Leah? What does the scripture say about it? Um, It says in Genesis 29, Genesis 29, 17, 29, 17. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. That was the reason. Rachel was beautiful. Leah was not. If I may say, I know it's harsh to say these days, but Rachel was beautiful. Leah was ugly. So it would be, when a husband marries a wife, and when a wife marries a husband, don't each one of them have to have some, some estimation of the other's beauty? 
for there to be proper affection and conjugal rights, proper affection and conjugal rights, doesn't there have to be some of that? So if Leah didn't have any of that, and Laban knew that, that's why he tricked Jacob. He knew it so much that he had to trick Jacob. That's how ugly Leah was. Really, I, I don't know how else to look at it. That's how she was. So for Jacob to love Rachel in that way, I would say, is not a sinful thing. Because everyone naturally, when he first meets a woman, wants to marry her, has to see some beauty in her to marry her. Otherwise, if she is very ugly, they would not at all or very little have marital intercourse. And her conjugal rights would be jeopardized, right? We can't uh, jeopardize the husband's conjugal rights or the wife's conjugal rights according to 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement, for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Husbands should not withhold from their wives and wives from their husbands, right? Now, one might say, this aspect of beauty and, and all, is it really a valid aspect of the natural way in which men and women marry each other? Is it sinful to look at beauty? Now, I'm not talking about beauty over character. I'm not talking about that issue. Of course, if you choose beauty over character, Christian character, then that's a sin. We're not talking about that. We're talking about whether beauty in and of itself, if you're looking at beauty, is a sin. Well, if beauty is a sin, for, for the husband to see that in his wife or the wife in her husband, look then at this analogy of Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. When it compares Christ and the church to husbands and wives. Right. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. No spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. 
Why this comparison? If the human comparison, the human action is a sinful action, then why did God, by the Holy Spirit, through Paul, the apostle, say it this way, that Christ, he is joined to his church to present her as completely, 100% beautiful. There is some beauty already, but he is beautifying the church even more to be perfectly beauty on the day of judgment at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? That's the biblical analogy. We might also consult Psalm 45, which is a messianic prophecy and speaks of Christ as having a beautiful wife in the church and also the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon, an analogy between Christ and the church. And there, her beauty is uh, elaborately explained. So, beauty in and of itself is not a sin. So, that, in that way, Jacob was endeared to Rachel because of her beauty. And Leah was completely the opposite. Remember, Laban knew that. That's why he forced Jacob to marry Leah. Because he was thinking, I'm probably not going to be able to marry her off to anybody. But but then also, Jacob still fulfilled his duties to her as a husband. I mean, she did have children with him. Yes. So it's not that he deprived her. He took care of her, provided for her, had children with her. Yes. Yes. And she had a place in the home. Yes. Once, Once the predicament was forced on him, he didn't deprive her. He didn't deprive her. That's why the first four sons came from her and also the fifth and sixth sons in 3017 3017 to 21 and one daughter, 17 to 21. So yes. How many many wives did Solomon have? Yeah, how many wives did Solomon have and did he love all of them? Well, it's <laughs> 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11. Were you asking this sarcastically? Or were you adding something to this? No, I'm not smart enough to add anything to this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it says in 1 Kings 11... 1 Kings 11, 1 and 2. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. The scripture says in verses 1 and 2, love. Of course, it's not the kind of love the Bible expects of a believer. Believer with believer. It's not that. But it is a kind of love, and it's described as love. Like obligation or something like that. Well, he didn't enter into them under obligation. 
He entered into them willingly. He's the king. But it does say he loved them. But it could not be in the full and true sense of the word because they turned his heart away from the Lord his God. Any more? This or another subject? Thank you.